Good morning. To open up to the Gospel of Mark, as we read together, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Matthew, and then Mark, the second book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, And was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning excited to have your word bear mightily upon our lives. And Lord, would you, by your Spirit, make it sharp to pierce into the depths of our hearts. Lord, as your Spirit descended on Christ at the time of His baptism, we pray, Lord, that even now your Spirit would descend upon us and that you would be pleased with our worship of you this morning. We pray this not on our account, not in anything that we can boast of in ourselves, but, Father, only in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so it's in His name that we pray. Amen. This morning, we are going to begin what I hope will be an awesome adventure. Uh, Perhaps the greatest kind of adventure that we could engage in in this lifetime. We're going to work our way slowly-ish through the Gospel of Mark. By God's grace, allow the full weight of the message of Mark to turn our hearts and to, to attune our minds towards Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the question Mark is asking throughout this gospel. Who is Jesus Christ? A close friend of mine brought that question to bear heavily on my mind when he made the point that really everybody believes in Jesus Christ. It's just a question of which Jesus Christ they believe in. Is he the Jesus Christ of myth? Right? A story told to little children? Someone who reasonable adults should not trifle with, maybe no different than Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny? 
Is Jesus the wise teacher who only teaches us how to live and and maybe how to serve others? Maybe you believe in the American Jesus. He was a good teacher and a good man, but he wouldn't dare be offensive to anybody. He promises earthly treasure and, in fact, will send practically everybody to heaven, unless you're like Hitler or somebody. He never brings up words like repentance or judgment. He overlooks sins and will never correct you. He promotes unity and tolerance at all costs. He serves your will and your wants ever before honoring God and ultimately wants you to live a life of high self-esteem, promoting love of self ever before love of others. I hope you don't believe in the American Jesus. As we enter into the Gospel of Mark, I think we will see someone different and something profound. What Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors call the the mystery of the person of Jesus Christ. We'll see someone who is at once the divine and eternal Son of God, but also someone who is completely ordinary in his full humanity. We'll find Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark not only speaking and acting for God, but, but speaking and acting as God. He'll forgive sins. He'll perform incredible miracles in his own name. He'll control the natural world around him, calming storms, calming the sea. He'll heal the sick, cast out demons, deliver with authoritative declaration the right interpretation of God's word. He'll declare that he came into the world to save sinners. In other words, he came from outside, somewhere outside this world. And he'll receive gladly the worship of those who see him as God. But throughout the gospel, we'll also encounter a living, breathing human being. Someone who's seen seemingly at first as really nothing more than just a man. The witness is clear. He is fully a man. He prays to God. He's laughed at and mocked at by other men. In the Gospel of Mark, we'll see Jesus get hungry, and so he needs to eat. We see him get thirsty, and so he needs something to drink. He's a man who even gets tired, and so in many places we see him sleeping and resting. Jesus is even seen as a man who cries, yea, even one who dies on a cross. He dies as all men die, in full human weakness. Robert Rayburn describes Mark as showing us a man who was once tempted in the wilderness and yet is ministered to by angels. He came from both Nazareth and heaven. Such a thing can be said of nobody else in the history of the world. The tension created by these two realities, these two facts about this single person will be felt as we work our way throughout the rest of this great gospel. That deity and humanity both find their fullness in the single person Jesus Christ, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the son of God who is judge over all men, became a man and is even now still a man and who became judged in place of us because of his love for us. The gospel begins with the declaration that the man Jesus Christ is the son of God. And all the way at the end of the gospel, we see that same declaration by, not coincidentally, a Gentile soldier who exclaims that this Jesus really was the son of God. Right in the middle of the gospel, chapter 8, 
We see Jesus raise the question when he asks, who do people say that I am? And then right at the climax of the gospel, the same question appears yet again, but this time from the lips of the high priest, where he asks, are you Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? This is the central question throughout this book. And friends, as we walk through this gospel over the next couple of months, we will see repeatedly different groups of people responding to this question in different ways. And that's preeminently the question that's put before us this morning. How will you, here today, sitting in Greenboat Baptist Church, respond to the person and work of Jesus Christ as he confronts us in his perfect word? Will you deny the Jesus of Scripture? Because he doesn't match up to the Jesus in your mind or the Jesus of our modern culture. Or will you have your understanding of Christ conformed to what we see here in this gospel? Submitting to the real Jesus and having your life intimately found in him. The beginning of Mark's gospel actually begins in the beginning. And so that's where we need to briefly go this morning in order to what I think is to feel the full weight of what Mark, the gospel writer, is doing here. So, the beginning starts, of course, with God creating Adam, man made in God's image, as a kind of son of God. And he places Adam, this son of God, in Eden. In this land of Eden, Adam walked with God, talked with God, knew God, and God dwelled with man. But, of course, Adam becomes a disobedient son. He, he shirked his responsibility and sought to free himself from God's rule and presence. What's the result? Adam and all of Adam's children, the rest of humanity, become enslaved to Satan and sin and was cast out of God's presence. Adam now lived east of Eden, out in the wilderness, away from the Lord. But God being a God of love and and desiring to ultimately bring himself glory, promises to redeem mankind back to himself. He would make us sons of God once again, but this time through a promised Messiah, a Christ who would come and lead mankind out of the wilderness and back in to Eden. And of course, God begins to do this through a group of people named the Jews. This nation of Hebrews became God's son among the nations. Do you know what the historic event was that that made this nation what it was? What one event which was repeated and talked about throughout Jewish history as being the essential component to Jewish DNA? It was the Exodus. The great Exodus event where God leads captive Israel out of slavery through the wilderness as he prepares to bring them back to a special land where he will once again dwell with them and they will walk with God. Israel as a new and better Adam. And it's there in the Exodus where God makes a covenant with Israel saying that he will be their God and they will be his people. And just as it was with Adam, so it is with Israel. They needed to obey God. Obedience to God was what the Israelites were called to as sons of God. Did they obey? No. Like Adam before them, they too rebelled against God, shaking their fists at him, seeking to live in ways that dishonored God. So do you know what happened to them? Well, like Adam before them, they too were cast out of the land. They were taken into exile, east of Eden, far east into Babylon, 
where there in that wilderness land, they sat as slaves under satanic idols. Both Adam and Israel failed as God's sons. But this doesn't mean that God had failed. By no means, may it never be. Because while Israel was away in exile, God sent prophets, love letters to them. Prophets who told them of a new exodus to come. An even greater exodus. One that, like that happened before, but better, a final exodus. Led by a Messiah, someone who is both a servant and divine. A son of man, but also the son of God. Mike read from these prophecies already, one of them. But turn again to Isaiah 40 as we reread some key passages concerning the Messiah who would come to lead this new exodus. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. As a side note, it needs to be seen here that the word Lord is really the name of Yahweh. In other words, here's someone crying out, prepare the way of Yahweh, our God. He then continues, look down at verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. Interestingly, it's only here in Isaiah where we see this announcement of a Messiah described as good news. Do you know what the phrase good news can also be translated as? Gospel. Isaiah is speaking here about a divine servant Messiah who will come as part of the coming gospel. The gospel of Mark is just the good news of Mark. And here's the striking thing to realize. As the Old Testament comes to a close, it becomes increasingly evident that the divine servant Messiah hasn't yet come. We're still waiting. And in fact, this final new exodus, it still hasn't happened. We're still waiting. Though the Jews finally make it back to Israel, it's clear that it's it's not the same thing. That it's actually become something of a wilderness itself. You know why? Because God isn't there with them. The glory of the Lord is absent. And so by the time you get to the last book of the Old Testament, there's still this very expectant hope of a coming Messiah who will lead the people out in a new exodus. We're back in the land, but we're not with God. In fact, turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Look what God says through this prophet concerning the coming Messiah. Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, I'm coming, says God. I'm coming soon. I'll be your Messiah. I'm not in the temple now. But I'll come and lead you back to a place where I will dwell with you once again. Oh, and one other thing. One other thing, I'm sending a messenger before me. Uh, One last Old Testament prophet who will prepare my way. Who will this prophet be? Look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So here's this expectant hope. He's coming soon. You know what happens? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. For 300 plus years, Israel becomes a wasteland, taken over by the Greeks and then later taken over and, and, and ruled over by the Romans. The land literally becomes this, this spiritual wilderness. God isn't speaking. He isn't sending prophets anymore. And His glory is clearly absent from the less than impressive temple they've built. The name of Yahweh and His glory seems to be receding and vanishing into the recesses of history. Until, seemingly out of the blue, something strange begins to happen. Mark, chapter 1, verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And what do we see him doing in verse 7? Preparing the way for someone much mightier than he. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. In fact, whoever this person is who's coming, he's so mighty that he'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is how the good news of Mark begins. Mark is purposefully tying together everything we've just looked at in this opening statement. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. It's actually one long sentence in the Greek. There should be no period between verse 1 and verse 2. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. What Mark is ultimately doing here is declaring that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of the Old Testament. But even more, Mark actually seems to be setting up this entire account, this whole book, on the idea that Jesus has begun the final new exodus. In Isaiah 40 and and Malachi 3, the two main texts that Mark's quoting here, they both, in their original context, look back to the first exodus. There, where Yahweh sent a divine messenger to prepare the way of God's son Israel as they did battle against the idolatrous nations in the promised land. But now, Isaiah is prophesying of a time when a messenger will actually prepare the way for Yahweh himself. And this time, It's not the idolatrous nations that he's going to judge. Now this time, it's faithless Israel, who having become like those nations, is now under threat of his judgment. And here's the irony. The Gospel of Mark will follow this tension all the way through to the end. A tension where Israel's God has now come in the flesh, and the true Son of God is there preaching about God being present. And he's come to inaugurate this new and final exodus, fully redeeming a people back to God. But get this, not everybody in Israel is following. In fact, the pastors, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, all of them refuse Christ. And so instead of getting blessing, they become a curse. So as we read verse 1 and 2, we get the whole of this gospel set up for us the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, just as it was written in Isaiah the prophet. You see that? Mark is saying, here's my gospel account. 
And it's really just a continuation of the gospel of Jesus that was declared back in the book of Isaiah. The coming of Jesus was not an afterthought to God. It wasn't his next plan and a plan gone horribly wrong. It was something entirely planned out and preached about throughout the Old Testament. The long-awaited Messiah was going to come. Mark says he came. Oh, and hey, guess what? When Isaiah and Malachi prophesied about Elijah the Baptist preparing the way, or the prophet, well, he's talking about John the Baptist. He came in the spirit of Elijah. John the Baptist, a man who looked like, he lived like, Elijah, he was clothed in camel's hair, wore a leather belt, ate nothing but wild locusts for dinner, honey for dessert. This was exactly how the prophet Elijah lived. And they both preached the exact same message. Repent of your sins. Just like the first exodus, so too now God is coming to judge. And unless you're found underneath the blood of the lamb, you will not escape his judgment. Even his living and his ministering out in the wilderness was no accident. Because it was there in the wilderness where God always brought his people to repentance. In the Exodus account, it was there in the wilderness where God's people wandered for 40 years as God brought them to repentance over worshiping idols. And during their exile into Babylon, it was in the wilderness where God caused his people to come to repentance over their worshiping of idols. And so here's John, dressing like Elijah preaching like Elijah, and even living in a wilderness context that brought to mind the ministry of Elijah, a ministry against Israel's disobedience and rebellion. Repent. New Testament scholar William Lane says this about John's ministry. The summons to be baptized in the Jordan River meant that Israel must come once more out to the wilderness. As Israel long ago had been separated from Egypt by a pilgrimage through the waters of the Red Sea, The nation is exhorted once again to experience separation. The people are called to a second exodus in preparation for a new covenant with God. Both John's call to repentance and his baptism are clear connections to the Old Testament prophets which expected the final salvation of God to be unveiled in the wilderness. Look what happens in verse 5. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem... We're going out to him, and we're being baptized. All these Jews knew what they were doing. They knew that they were coming out to the wilderness for a certain reason. This wasn't like some weekend church retreat where they went out and like kind of got a spiritual high. This was, this was national repentance. Out in the wilderness, acknowledging that God in judgment was not dwelling with them in the land. And so they were in need of a saving grace. They go out. Imagine the scene. Hundreds, thousands, seated along the Jordan River, listening to the preaching of this this wild prophet man, warning them of God's judgment against their sin. And at the end of his sermon, endless lines would be formed as they walked through the Jordan, being baptized by John. Not at all unlike Israel a few thousand years earlier as they walked through the Red Sea seeking God's saving grace. And I hope you see this. That this is is how John's preaching was preparing the way for Christ. By preaching the full weight of the law against sin, men and women there came to see their need for a savior. People become awakened to the reality of their own sinful nature. And so they become eager listeners 
eager to hear any kind of good news that you can offer. You see, when men and women are rightly confronted with their sin, and the full weight of God says, yes, you stand under God's judgment, then they rightly begin to ask, what must I do to be saved? And this is just as true of us today as it was back then in John's day. We all need the preparatory work of going out into the wilderness to see our sin and the judgment that we deserve ever before hearing about the good news. In other words, without the bad news of God's real judgment against us, the good news of salvation makes absolutely no sense at all. Jesus saves. From what? Many people today are actually, sadly, just Christian in name because they've missed this truth. They go to church. They call themselves Christians. But because they've never gone out to the wilderness, because they've never actually repented of their sins, they also have never really trusted in Jesus Christ. Their hearts haven't been properly prepared for the message of Christ. And sadly, their hearts now aren't properly prepared for the second coming of Christ. The divine and proper preparation for the gospel of Jesus Christ is preaching about our sin. That's why Jesus taught, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's those who first mourn over their sin that can then see their need for a Savior. And in that Savior do they find their blessing. And though John, in keeping with his message on repentance, baptized with water, a symbolic act which showed somebody dying to sin as they went under and then being washed clean as, as they came up, renewed to life out of the water, ultimately this baptism with water didn't save a soul. It was a picture of salvation, but it wasn't salvation. Just like it is today, baptism doesn't save anybody. And I want you to hear that loud and clear coming from a Baptist pastor in a Baptist church. No one is saved by a baptism. No more than, than putting on a wedding ring makes you marry. It's just a symbol pointing to something real, something more powerful, something effective. And that's what John preaches in verse 8. Look at verse 8. I've baptized you with water, but he, the mighty one who is coming after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The water John was using, see, that was just external. That can't wash away your sin. Your sin is a heart problem, and so what is needed is a real heart washing. And so when Christ comes, the baptism that he's going to bring, yes, that's going to deal with our sin. Because there we'll be drenched with the spirit of the living God himself, fully immersed in his being and power and raised by the spirit to real new life. Just as Isaiah and Malachi declared, John the Baptist did prepare the way for the Messiah. Look down now at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, this verse is at once incredibly anticlimactic. But then again, I think it should be. You see, the Gospel of Mark is presenting to us a Messiah who is, yes, God, but he's also, again, fully a man. And so this isn't the thunder and the lightning and the columns of fire shaking at Mount Sinai like we saw in the first Exodus. No, in this new Exodus, God is delivering his people through a suffering servant. A mighty king, yes, but a man, meek and mild. He comes from heaven 
But he also comes from the middle of nowhere, a little town called Nazareth that no one ever heard of. And what's his first order of business? Well, he too comes out to the wilderness in order to be baptized. Wait, what? Why why would Jesus need to be baptized? Especially if the baptism is something that symbolized repentance from sin. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, we see John the Baptist actually trying to prevent Jesus from getting baptized for this very reason. The reason Jesus came to be baptized was because as the one who would lead God's people through this new and final exodus, well, he must also associate himself, identify himself with the very people he's come to save. And so he needed no baptism, yes, but because there was no sin to repent of, yes, he still got baptized. He came out into the wilderness and he began there in the Jordan to associate himself with the guilty. He's indicating here, actually, how he's going to become our Savior. By standing in the river whose waters repentant Jews had come to wash away their sin, and now allowing that same water polluted by those same sins to engulf him as he descended into the river, symbolizing the death to come for him. One commentator says it this way, It wasn't for his own salvation that he was baptized, but for ours. It wasn't for his guilt, but for ours. And it wasn't because he feared the wrath to come, but to save us from the wrath to come. And what was the result of his baptism? Look at verses 11 and 12. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Again, this isn't just mere theatrics. This is a scene rich in the imagery of the Old Testament, notably one from Exodus and again from Isaiah. It's there, first in the Exodus on Mount Sinai, where the heavens are are rent asunder and God himself descends to meet Moses and Israel as a witness in Israel that he's delivered them from bondage. But perhaps more strikingly, it's in the same gospel message from Isaiah, where he preaches of a time when the heavens will be torn apart as God himself descends to lead in a new Exodus. Look at Isaiah 64, 9 through 10. Here the prophet repeats the same problem we've already seen. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. And then it's back in verse 1 where Isaiah actually gives the answer. Oh, that you would tear the heavens open and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. This is what's happening at Jesus' baptism. The heavens are opened. The Spirit of God is descending upon the Son of God as, as God the Father declares His delight in Jesus and the redemptive exodus He's about to begin. And it's no coincidence that the word being used here of the heavens being torn open is used only one other time in the New Testament, right at the end of the Gospel of Mark. There, when Jesus is dying on the cross... And the temple curtain was torn, ripped in two, now signifying our open access to God through Christ. Ironically, what was being declared by God there was far different from what's being announced here. For there, the Father looked with displeasure and actual perfect hatred as he poured out his wrath upon his Son, who in fully identifying himself with sinners, actually became a curse for us. And so we see the Gospel of Mark both 
beginning and ending with these two shocking moments of God ripping apart. Well, just as this passage began with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, so too now, in coming to a close, we see Jesus himself begin this exodus by going out into the depths of the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Notice what verse 12 says. It is the Spirit of God who drove Jesus out into the wilderness in order to be tempted by Satan. Why? Precisely because Jesus is going to do in this exodus what both Israel and Adam had failed to do before him. The first Adam, he failed miserably as he was tempted by Satan, who approached him in the form of a wild serpent. And now as we all live east of Eden, all the sons and daughters of Adam live in a world where all animals kind of retain this sense of antagonism against us. Only in Eden, only in the new Eden, do we ever hear the lion actually laying down with the lamb or children being able to play with snakes all day and not get bitten. But here, now, in our fallen world, all creation, animals especially, rebel against us men. We who were actually created at the first to rule over them in peace. Jesus is entering intensely into that world as he identifies himself with us as fallen men. And so it is with last Israel. As they were driven out into the wilderness, they too succumbed to temptation, failing to worship God alone. They listened to the lies of the tempter and gave themselves to false god, worship idols. In fact, they built an idol while God was giving them the Ten Commandments. And so the result, for 40 years, they wandered in judgment in the wilderness. But Christ goes out to that same wilderness, not under judgment at all, but in fact to do battle with that awful tempter who called both Israel and Adam to fail in the first place. And look, because they failed, our world is the way it is now, cursed, totally fallen. But Christ goes, and he doesn't fail here, does he? Now, as he enters into that wilderness to do battle against Satan, he succeeds. He emerges totally as the victor. So we have here, right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, the beginning of the end. As Christ begins to lead a people in the final exodus, we get a foretaste right here at the beginning of his, of his ministry of his ultimate victory. Satan will be done away with. Here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was baptized as a man, but will forgive sins as God. Jesus Christ, who in the wilderness is here being tempted as a man, and even needs to be ministered to as a man, but he conquered over Satan as God. Although he hungered as a man, fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, later we're going to see him feeding thousands miraculously as God. He'll live a wearied life as a man, but as God, he will give rest to those who are weary and heavy laden. Friends, here in Mark, we're presented with the man, Jesus Christ, who is also the divine Son of God. And even now, he's calling men and women to find safety in him and follow him in the way that leads to God's final exodus movement in safety. Judgment is coming. But before it does, I ask you, the gospel of Mark is asking you and will continue to ask you, how will you respond to Jesus Christ? Let's pray.